more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of the, these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Samara Haver from the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences. Hi, Samara. Hi. How's it going? It's going good. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, just some background for our listeners. Um, Samara and I are good friends, have been for a while. Um, Samara is currently no longer a graduate student at Oregon State. She is, in fact, a, a postdoctoral scholar, a postdoctoral researcher um, at OSU. But she and I have been trying to do this episode for about a year and a half, <laughs> which happens to align with a certain other thing that happened in the world. So we're finally getting around to it now um, to discuss your PhD research. Yes. <laughs> Great. Let, let's dive right in. Um, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of components to your research. So I think the easiest way to, to get listeners into it is to ask you to tell us elevator pitch, one sentence, what do you do? Okay. So as a short summary, I use passive acoustic monitoring to study underwater environments. Um, and I work really closely with federal agencies with a specific aim to help manage and protect marine mammals. Okay. As I said, a lot of components um, to that work. So let's let's start at the beginning. You said you use passive acoustics. So what what is passive, passive acoustics? Are there other kinds of acoustics? Yes, there are. So in ocean acoustics research, there's passive acoustics, and then there's also active acoustics. And passive acoustics means we're passively listening as opposed to active when you're adding sound to the water and listening to um, the reflection of that. So in my research, the passive acoustics, we are putting instruments into the ocean that can be our ears and record all of the sounds um, so that we can figure out what is in the ocean. And there's a lot of different ways that scientists use passive acoustics. There are fixed and mobile platforms. A mobile platform is like a glider or a hydrophone, an instrument you might tow behind a boat. And a fixed platform is what you might traditionally think of as something you just deploy into the ocean, you leave it there, and then when it's done collecting data for you, you go back and pick it up. So it's one of those things, um, one of these fixed hydrophones that if you don't retrieve it, you don't get your data, right? Yes. Sometimes you do get data. There's like cabled systems or they have some sort of satellite. Uh, the research that I'm doing that I did for my PhD, right? If we didn't go back and pick it up, we did not have any data. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll get into this a little later, but some of your, your, your hydrophones are in quite remote locations. So probably pretty lucky to get some of those back sometimes? Yes. Always very happy whenever we got any of them back. We definitely lost a few and and had some casualties along the way. But luckily, I was working with a network and not just one site. So I had enough data to put together my dissertation. 
Yeah, my, my advisor, I also work in ocean research, so my advisor always says you have to be willing to lose whatever it is you put in the sea. I bet that's something you live by quite strongly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sometimes I used to talk to the hydrophones before deployment. Please come back. I need you. Be safe out there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so that's a bit of an intro to, to passive acoustics and the differences um, between the, the two different passive and, uh, passive and active acoustics. Now... Um, the the end part of your elevator kind of sentence is that you do this work to kind of help manage and protect marine mammals. Is is the work that you do encompassing of all marine mammals or just a specific group? So the my dissertation research was focused on uh, baleen whales. So these are animals that vocalize at lower frequencies. Um, as opposed to higher frequencies, higher pitch sounds that come from um, like dolphins, smaller whales, other animals. So my recorders were specifically um, set to record these lower frequencies. So that's the animal group that I studied. But we also designed that specifically because we're interested in listening to these marine mammals and what other sounds were within the same frequency range that they rely on for communication. Which includes? Includes, well, a lot of different things, but a particular note is human-generated sounds, like from shipping, from recreation, uh, military exercises, um, cruise ships, those types of things. Um, And then also what we categorize as natural physical sounds Um, including wind, rain, waves, volcanoes, earthquakes, that kind of thing. Those are all very generally low frequency sounds. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like these, these platforms, which I think are also called noise reference stations. Yes, it is. The, (laughs) the official name is the NOAA and National Park Service Ocean Noise Reference Station Network. Wow. Which is a mouthful. <laughs> so we call it the NRS. The noise reference stations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so besides being able to, so besides recording low frequency noises, which include baleen whale vocalizations and, um, as you described, anthropogenic noises generated by humans and these kind of um, physical sounds, you were also, what you were hoping to get at with, with these NRSs um, was long-term data collection, right? Yeah, so when you combine all those sounds together, and I should also mention that some fish sounds fall into that low-frequency category Mm. as well. But anyway, when you combine all those sounds together, um, it is considered a soundscape. And I was particularly interested in studying soundscapes around the United States, comparing them, and trying to figure out what might be driving differences across different areas. Right, and... Um, I remember in our pre-interview, we said something, right, because I said, oh, how nifty that you're able to kind of like pick a band that or low frequency that you're able to listen to both whales and anthropogenic sound. And you said it makes science easier, but it's much harder on the whales. Well, yeah, of course, (laughs) because that is their communication range. And we wouldn't be doing this research if it wasn't potentially a problem for the animals or at least, you know, not from the conservation angle. Right. And for those that maybe don't know, um, whales um, uh, probably rely most heavily on their kind of um, sound and and vocalizations for communication because they don't have very good eyesight. Um, they can only kind of see on an order of meters, whereas their vocalizations travel for miles, right? Yeah, exactly. And the ocean is very dark. So even if they could see, you know, they can't. <laughs> it's out of their control. And the ocean also washes away scent. So a lot of terrestrial animals use scent to kind of track each other and communicate. Can't really do that very effectively in the water. Right. So sound sound is super important. We generate a lot of it in the oceans. And so there's there's a lot of interest in trying to figure out, you know, how does this impact marine mammals? Where is it impacting marine mammals? And how is it different across regions? which is where your PhD research kind of filled some of those gaps. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's, let's talk about your NRSs. Where, how many were there and where were they? So when, when the system was kind of 
being designed and very and implemented, the idea was to collect baseline data all around what is called the exclusive economic zone, which is um, up to 200 miles offshore. So um, this project was in partnership with a lot of different NOAA line offices, which is kind of government speak for different research groups um, and includes um, fishery science centers and also the National Park Service and Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. So all these groups came together and said, what are the areas that are important to animals that we want more information about and want to be able to compare? For many, many years, scientists have been using sound to study the ocean, but they haven't always been able to do it in a comparable way. And even as research groups have come up with technology that can be calibrated and compared, for the most part, they've kind of stuck to some um, either like regional studies but nothing that has been coordinated across basically every region of the U.S. So the idea with this project was to take these 12 sites that are in the Arctic, the Gulf of Alaska, um, on, the, on the West Coast, um, all the way down to California from Washington State, Hawaii, all the way out in American Samoa, Gulf of Mexico, along the East Coast, um, and in the Caribbean, and look at the soundscapes of these sites and establish baselines that we, that we can use to kind of monitor and track changes over time. Wow. Um, that sounds like a bunch of fun places. Did you get to, to go to all of those? <laughs> I think I got to go to about half. Some of, the, some of them are pretty hard to get to. And so luckily, another... Um, kind of plug for for working with a lot of different people across widespread areas is that um, you don't have to go and do all the field work and all the work yourself. So in many cases, we just sent this hydrophone, these hydrophones to our partners, and they would deploy them for us and, and send them back um, when they were full. Bummer. So no, no Caribbean, no American Samoa, no, no Hawaii, <laughs> no Arctic. I had to go to California, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 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 you you have these NRSs in these 12 different locations all across um the US kind of encompassing um you know kind of all all the parts of I guess US um waters. Um what what was the what was the overarching aim? We're going to we're going to get into your like specific um chapters for for your PhD research in a little bit, but what was the the overarching aim of of this work? Sure. So we wanted to take these these calibrated hydrophones which were all recording in all these different sites at the same time and try to figure out first of all if the soundscapes were different, you know, were they louder or quieter? Um what were the different sound sources? What was driving those sound levels? And then try to evaluate these changes over time and figure out what might be causing that as well. And um, so it wasn't just obviously, you know, your own curiosity that was driving this, but there but there were kind of priorities and interests from different um federal agencies going into this work as well, right? There was NOAA as well as the National Marine Sanctuaries. Yeah, so this is a huge project that isn't just something I, you know, came up with. When I started <laughs> graduate school, um, there's a ton of resources and, and knowledge and funding that went into it before I even arrived on the scene. So, yeah, NOAA, the National Park Service, and then, like you said, different groups within NOAA, like the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, had particular questions and interests in soundscapes and having comparable data. I, I think we've been doing that bad thing where we've been using an acronym that we use so much in our daily lives. <laughs> Maybe oh, just yeah. for, for anyone who doesn't know what NOAA stands for, it is the National Ocean, Oceanic. and atmospheric administration. <laughs> See, I don't even know. I know what they do, but I don't know what it stands for. Right. And they, yeah, they oversee the oceans and the atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so 
like you said, there, there's obviously been a lot of people, a lot of agencies, a lot of groups that have been thinking about this and working on, on this. But, but, you know, you were kind of instrumental in getting this work off of the ground, in large part also thanks to a scholarship that supported you for a lot of your PhD work. Yeah, so I guess I should say first, my job was to analyze all the data. So the data is all being collected, but then I came into the picture, I analyzed all the data, and then I earned my degrees. But um, yeah, so I first came to OSU as a master's student and I worked on a couple of projects. This one was just getting started. We were deploying the hydrophones. And like I said before, these are archival hydrophones. I didn't have any data until we got them back. And these were recording for two years. So essentially anything that was deployed during my master's degree wouldn't be available um, before I graduated. So I knew that I really liked doing this work and I wanted to answer some more questions. So I applied for a scholarship called the Dr. Nancy Foster Scholarship, which is from the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries and specifically funds graduate students um, researching oceanography and looking at questions that are specifically of interest to National Marine Sanctuary priorities. And in my case, I was offered this award for four years. So they funded my, I guess, my stipend and my tuition while I worked on my PhD. Right. Because note to any prospective graduate students out there, you should not pay for grad school. Yeah, definitely not. At least not in our field. I know it can be no. different in some like law school and whatnot, but yeah. Oh, well, that's yeah, yeah that's very different. different. <laughs> not in the sciences. That's a ripoff. Yeah, no, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> um, and from uh, obviously, I know you personally and, and from what I know about your Nancy Foster experience is that it's quite, you know, it's not just money, you know, right? You you you're part of a cohort. You do an annual trip. Yeah, so we are trained to be sanctuary ambassadors, um, which generally means that we, we know about the system, we can represent the system, talk about research, um, and then our projects as Foster Scholars are, like I said, specifically tied to sanctuary. So unlike some programs where they just kind of cut you a check and off you go, I <laughs> wrote a project proposal that was specifically to do research with the, with this passive acoustic network and answer a series of questions that were of interest to to NOAA as a whole, but then also very specifically within sanctuaries. Right. So speaking of those prioritized questions, let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the 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 different components of your PhD. You had four four chapters, four chapters in total. Technically, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say she has four chapters, <laughs> um, three of which are, are published and out, right? Mm -hmm. Woohoo! Go Samara. Um, fourth still underway. Um, so so let's get into it. Tell tell me about the first one. This is kind of the one that you're that for you is like technically accounts. But yeah, so this is something this is what I started working on when I was applying to Nancy Foster and kind of getting into this project and deciding that I wanted to keep running with it. And in this paper, I, I talk about all the different sites and what we expected to find, kind of preview what we found in maybe the first year in some cases, um, and just kind of generally introduce the research project. Um, it's almost like a methods paper. Yeah, that's a, that's a paper. That counts. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, so your first chapter really sets the scene for what is to come. What mm -hmm. came next? Yeah, so what came next was I wanted to look very specifically at shallow water, the shallow water site. So in ocean acoustic research, you can't really compare deep water recordings. And, and some of my sites are in like 3,000 meters of water um, to shallower sites, which I defined as less than 100 meters because of the way sound propagates. So... Three of the 12 sites are in the shallow water, and the, the research group that I'm part of, which is the Cooperative Institute at Oregon State out at Hatfield Marine Science Center, um, th they have been using these hydrophones for many years and in different projects, different areas. And so around the same time, there was um, 
my my friend's project was recording in Glacier Bay National Park in southeast Alaska. So I was able to include some of the data that she recorded as part of her PhD and compare it to American Samoa, um, our site in the Caribbean, and also Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is off the coast of Massachusetts. And in this project, I was specifically interested in comparing the sound levels at these four sites and then figuring out what was driving those sound levels. So even if one was noisier than another, it wasn't necessarily uh, the impact of human activities. It could have been animals or particular um, uh, natural physical events like storms, wind, rain, that kind of thing. Mm. And I think um, you... What you, what you found as part of this is that American Samoa was, in fact, quite a loud site, right? But it, but that was, like you just um, said, wasn't driven by, like, anthropogenic noise. It was actually reef animals that were generating that noise. Yeah, reefs are super noisy. It's a lot of animals with eating and popping sounds. Fish <laughs> make all sorts of weird sounds. Um, yeah, and across these four sites, because they're so far away and diverse... There weren't a lot of common denominators, but there was one, the humpback whale. Mm. So I was able to look through the data from all of these sites and track when humpback whales were there, compare sound levels, and try to figure out how much um, the soundscape was driven by, you know, biological, natural sound sources compared to, like, ship traffic other sorts of human-generated sounds. Mm. So of the of the four sites that you compared um, in this chapter, where would you say humpback whales would be at their happiest? Can you give an answer <laughs> to that? I'm putting you on the spot. I didn't ask you this in the pre-interview. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of assumptions about what makes humpback whales happier. But if we assume that they're happier where it's quieter, then that would probably be at either American Samoa among the other biological sound sources, <laughs> or in Glacier Bay National Park, which is a heavily regulated National Park Service um, park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the assumption that I was making, that a quieter, that a whale in a quiet habitat is a happier whale. Yeah. Which, ongoing research into that, are, are stressed whales... Are, are whales that are in noisy places stressed out? Something that my lab is looking into yeah, on gray we'll, whales. We'll but stay tuned for that. Yeah, <laughs> you can inter me, interview me for that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, so like you said, you couldn't really compare shallow with deep water sites. So then chapter three, um, I actually didn't ask you this before, but is the chapter three focuses on Cordal Bank, right? Was that mm -hmm. one of your deep water sites? Yeah, so then the rest of my dissertation, I went back to deep water. Mm -hmm. Into the deep. Into the deep. <laughs> Into the dark. Yeah. So in my third chapter, I I took a very specific look at one national marine sanctuary, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is near San Francisco, Central California. And there, before we put a noise reference station in that sanctuary, there hadn't been really any passive acoustic research so wow, that's that's kind of surprising to me, given that I don't know, there's so much, you know, kind of marine mammal research that goes on in California and San Francisco being, I mean, a huge port. Yeah. Well, so the other thing about National Marine Sanctuaries in California is that there are a handful of them and they're all stacked up um, next to each other. Their their borders are literally touching so there's been a lot of research in other sanctuaries, mm. but it just not in Cordell Bank. I see. And and is that is that in part because has some of that research done in the kind of neighboring sanctuaries been used as proxies for what's going on in others type I thing? Think or maybe just a little bit or just, you know, no one got around to it. Finite amount of resources and you do what you can. That's fair. Um, Give science money. Yes. Always, <laughs> always need more money. Always need science. more money. <laughs> anyway, so, okay, so, yeah, Cordal Bank, there's never been passive acoustic research, in comes Samara. Yeah, and so, like you said, there are shipping lanes going into San Francisco and the Port of Oakland, which is actually much larger than the Port of San Francisco. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, 
the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries was interested in what is this soundscape like? What's there? What's generating sound? So I went in and tried to answer that question. And I was particularly interested in looking at um, baleen whales, when I could hear them, if I could hear them, what species. And so I was able to collaborate with researchers that have done or have been doing visual surveys in the sanctuary for many years and could share some data with me that they collected while the hydrophone was recording so I could compare the whales that I heard to the whales that they saw. Not like the exact same individual, but just generally, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. humpback to humpback. Right. So what I found was, well, I found that shipping noise was actually pretty pervasive in the sanctuary. Um, And also that the whales were vocalizing, or I was hearing them on the hydrophone, later into the fall from when the visual observers had kind of considered, weren't seeing them anymore. So maybe they had migrated away or went further offshore or something. So this provided some information to the sanctuary about their voluntary ship slowdown, um, which where a voluntary ship slowdown is not a, um, it's not mandated, but it's kind of requested of vessels transiting through the sanctuary at certain times of the year to slow down to help avoid collisions with whales. Mm. And so the deadline that the sanctuary had for this voluntary ship slowdown was earlier than you were still hearing whale vocalizations in the sanctuary. Yeah, exactly. So what was really cool is I could provide that information to the sanctuary and they were able to kind of integrate that in the reporting and kind of make considerations for how to change what they suggest for how to protect marine mammals. It's all very, lots of levels of government (laughs) coming into play there. So it's not like, you know, I send over the data and they just make a change immediately. No, it's never that easy with the feds. (laughs) But I mean, that is a fantastic example of, of some very applied marine science of you having a concrete recommendation or at least result that should hopefully lead to some change or change in recommendation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was very rewarding to do something that I felt will really make a change. Yeah. I'm going to sidebar quickly here because I'm realizing that people who are listening to this might not know how how you like look through and identify, I guess, whale calls. Um you know, do you do you have to look at every single minute of every single hour of every single day, week, month, year to pick out all the calls? Or is there is there a nifty little model that helps you pick them out? How does it work? There's a lot of different ways. You can look through every day, hour, minute, as you said. <laughs> if you want to be especially precise. Um, or you can use a detector. And there's a lot of different types of detectors. There's detectors that would look for the how a... So I guess I should also say, when we're doing this type of analysis, I'm not just sitting there with headphones on listening. I also turn these recordings into pictures called spectrograms. So because as humans, we rely on our eyes um, just as much as our other senses to kind of make sense of our world. So I need to look at it to figure out what it is. So anyway, some of these detectors can take those pictures and try to look for matches um, throughout the data or we can look at the frequency, the amount of energy in particular frequencies and use that to figure out when when the whales might be vocalizing or not. So yeah, a variety of detectors came into play. Uh, all of these whales have different vocalizations, so you have to use a different, even if it's the same type of detector, a different detector for each species. Oh, that I didn't know. Wow. And yeah, they're customized. well i could i could ask so many follow-up questions about that but i think then we're going to go way down a rabbit hole um that maybe isn't so 
overall interesting to listeners. We'll talk about that but, offline. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I just wanted to give um, yeah listeners a, a sense of how that works, of how you identifying calls works. Um, okay, so so we've gone through your kind of methods chapter where you laid out what the plan was for this research project. We've talked about how you compared your shallow water sites, um, looking at kind of what shaped the soundscapes in each of those and how there were differences between, you know, biological, physical, and anthropogenic sounds. Then we just covered your chordal bank chapter, um, which found kind of a mismatch in or a lag in the acoustic detections of, of humpback, uh, of all marine mammals, or was it, well, baleen whales, or was it predominantly humpback whales? Well, I was actually mostly blue and fin whales. Oh, wow. And we also Wrong found entirely. out that, well, we found out that humpback whales were vocalizing year-round, which also oh. was not previously known. Hmm. Yeah, it is hard to visually observe things in the winter off yeah. the West Coast, mm-hmm. or any coast probably. Anyway, all, all of this is to lead us to the fourth fourth chapter, which is which is a bit of a beast. <laughs> We had quite a fun time wa- walking through this in the pre-interview. <laughs> um, I guess I guess I'll start by saying is that what you wanted to do here is to kind of holistically look at how shipping noise shapes a soundscape, right? Yeah. So kind of going back to the to the main goal, some of the main goals of the project was to look at um, underwater sound and be able to compare across all these different areas um, with kind of standardized metrics to go along with these baselines. So in this project, I wanted to revisit that by by looking at a, um, I guess, problem in the ocean, which is chronic shipping noise. And because shipping noise is kind of just prevalent over days, weeks, months, continuously, it's really hard to to track it in the same way you might be able to track a, a sonar pulse or something that happens intermittently. So in the U.S., there, aren't really, there isn't really an agreed-upon standard of how we monitor shipping noise and what that, mm. what that looks like in a soundscape because there's so many different types of ships and all ships sound a little bit different. They have their own signature based on you know, the size of the vessel, the engine, how fast they're going, all these different things. Mm. So generally researchers kind of look at a frequency band, like a, a number of different frequencies and try to track the energy in that as kind of a proxy for shipping noise as opposed to just tracking individual ships when there's so many, they just kind of all mush together. Mm-hmm. But um, this is a worldwide problem. And in Europe, they have kind of come up with a solution in what is called the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. And in that, they pick out two frequency bands and use those as a proxy for shipping noise. So I wanted to take those and compare them to actual records of ship activity from something called Automatic Information System, or AIS, which ships carry and it it automatically sends a report of their position and their speed and some other information, which is used by in a variety of different industries and uses um, to monitor where ships are. So I took that AIS information. I looked at when ships were in the vicinity of each hydrophone, when the hydrophone was recording, and then I compared it to these um, sound bands put forth in the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. And generally, I found that these particular bands were very excellent for monitoring shipping noise. So that's those giant cargo ships full of cargo containers or tankers carrying fuel across the ocean, um, whereas they were not so good for tracking fishing vessels or or military vessels or cruise ships or smaller things. And yeah, going back to kind of what the whole justification of this of this kind of project was, was to set these baselines and maybe standard metrics for how in the US to monitor shipping, underwater shipping noise, right? Yeah, so when we have these continuous 
data sets, we want to have ways to summarize what we're hearing pretty efficiently. We can always go back and get more details, but using kind of energy bands to give us a, an idea of what's going on. Mm. And and something that you said to me in the pre-interview is that like it's hard to get these AIS records, right? And in in detail and in some of those remote places, it's hard to go through like with a fine-toothed comb through all these acoustic data sets. So, hopefully by having this kind of standardized baseline metric, it becomes easier to to look at these things. Yeah, exactly. So then we only need to dig through the AIS data if we have a specific question about a certain area or want more detail, but this can give us a, a broad overview of what's going on. Right. Wow. And that one's still sort of in the works, almost there. It's almost out. <laughs> it's, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you did your master's at Oregon state, did your PhD here and you're staying. You're still and I'm here. And so uh, now I'm a postdoc. <laughs> you just love it so much. Go Beavs. E- yes. Yes, that's <laughs> Go Beavs. That was the main motivator. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were we were talking a little about about, you know, you feeling like there was still a lot more to be done here at OSU. Um and I guess I mean, yeah, you're an expert now in soundscapes and and applying kind of passive acoustic monitoring to a bunch of different species projects all all over right yeah and the a real plus for me to stay at osu is that i'm able to keep working in the cooperative institute which kind of positions me between osu and noaa so i get some of the benefits of being in the academic realm and some of the benefits of, of being in the federal realm and working with federal researchers. Mm. And because I'm really interested in in these kind of questions from federal agencies and, and standardized monitoring and conservation in a very applied and directed way, but then having the, the academic freedom to kind of ask those questions. <laughs> and, <laughs> And cutting out a little bit of the bureaucracy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if there's if there's like one thing besides, you know, always try trying to get funding is that networking is such an important part of our field of science in general. And it it I mean, it played a big role in you kind of getting to where you are now. But before before we get there, um, let's I, I want to chat a little about Samara Haver growing up. Did she did she always want to listen to humpback whale, baleen whale calls. <laughs> did, did she always dream about that? She didn't, but <laughs> she might have if she really had thought about that that was a job. Right. Little Samara didn't know that being a scientist was a thing. Yeah, I didn't really. I always loved science class and kind of science questions, and I went to science camp and but it didn't. I didn't really put it together that being a scientist was a career mm-hmm. um, or something you can be, other than I don't know, sitting in a microscope in a lab coat. <laughs> the classic like, image of a scientist. Or like uh, I don't know. I knew about like NASA engineers or kind of, but mm. you know, the like broader realm of sciences. Right. Was not something I was aware of, but. I was interested. I loved going to the ocean. I used to love to go to tide pools. So that that spark was kind of always there. I just had to go through um, a lot of different experiences to finally put it together. Mm. That that's something I could do. Mm. And you're a Portland native, so the Pacific Ocean was always something. Yeah, that was the yeah. ocean you were playing around in, right? right? Yes, As a yes. Kid. I grew up going to the Oregon coast. Yeah. So. It's, full circle yeah, it's now. Very, it's very, yeah, coming back and working in Newport is pretty wild. If little Samara knew. Where she would be. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I think you had quite an interesting path. Maybe to some this seems like quite a natural progression to where you are now. But in your undergrad, you studied neuroscience and psychology. Yeah, I I went into college and, well, I knew I wanted to be a natural science major, still figuring out what that meant <laughs> in the job world. Other, I originally started as pre-med. I thought, you know, oh, I like science. I should become a doctor. Mm, Turns out we all think that. the whole, like, blood situation, not, not, y- really not your thing. <laughs> yeah. So 
I, yeah, I decided I was really interested in brains and, and <laughs> cognition and, and that type of thing. So that led me to major in psychology and neuroscience, which I loved, but I was still kind of figuring things out as I went along. And I decided I wanted to study abroad in my junior year because it sounded fun. What a great opportunity. <laughs> and I went to the like study abroad fair at my college. And I remember wandering around the room and looking for something that was completely different from my experience. And I, my undergrad was in Colorado. So landlocked state, studying brains of humans. And so I decided to um, do this program called Sea Semester, where I would learn to sail a wooden tall ship and study the ocean. Wow. Is that, okay, sea semester. Are you at sea for the entire semester? Or is it like in no, stints? No, so we do. There's like a pre-program in the programs based in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So we went out there first and they do kind of background classes, mm. um, make sure we're up to speed, ready to go, and we design our research projects. And then we, um, the ships kind of travel around different places all year. But in my case, we got on board in Key West, Florida. Ooh, yeah. fun. And then how long were you at C4 doing your project? Um, a little less than two months. I want to say it was like a month and a half. Wow. Sure. Wow. Yeah, something like that. That's a long time. It was. Yeah. And I'd never been at sea before. I mean, I'd been on like boats on a lake, but not on the ocean. No. So I had no idea if I was going to get really seasick or totally hate it. And? I, I didn't. <gasps> it was wild. I remember getting on the boat and we're leaving Key West and I'm going and I stand up in the front of the boat. and <gasps> Like I'm in Titanic. <laughs> yeah, we're leaving. There are waves bouncing along. And I look back. And like 90% of my peers are just throwing up over the rail. They're so sick. And that was the first moment where I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm going to be good at this. <laughs> and you were. And yeah, you loved it. I loved it. What was, out of curiosity, what was your research project? What did you do? Can you remember? Yeah, I studied pteropods. I wanted to look at their shells and huh. we sampled them in different places to try to figure out if ocean acidification was eating away at them yet. Oh, and? Were they well, at that time? I mean, we only did our project over six weeks. So I, yeah, pretty sure. It short. wasn't happening that fast, but we <laughs> fed it into, it's a longitudinal study. So we collected some data and I don't know, sometime in the future, maybe someone will find something significant and write it up. Wow, interesting. Or maybe that's already been established enough and they don't need to. Maybe. But what a cool, okay, wow. So you do the C semester, which I've never heard of. Um C semester's done. You go back to Colorado, landlocked Colorado. What do you do? Right. So I go back to college and it's time to finish my major and graduate. And one of the last classes I took was about um, animal cognition, cognitive ethology. And at the end, we did individual projects. And since I had this new or I guess renewed interest in the ocean, I decided to study marine mammals and and learn about their brains and what they were kind of capable of doing and, and thinking about, I guess, to not anthropomorphize it too much. Um, yeah. So Are they thinking about me the way I'm thinking about them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I was really interested in, in marine mammals and that kind mm. of led me towards that path. And after I graduated, I moved to Woods Hole to work for this program C semester because I really did love it that much. Wow. But after a while. Well, so you were like an, an advisor or one of the people who went on the talk. Yeah. What was your role, I guess, in the company? Well, so I was, um, I was a recruiter. So I went to colleges <laughs> all around the country and talked to undergrads about doing the program. That sounds like a lot of fun. Is, yeah. I have now almost visited every state. I have seven to go. Wow. Yeah. Let's get those ticked off tomorrow. I know. What's left? We're really going off the track here, but what's left? Can you Oklahoma? Okay. Um Tulsa? <laughs> yeah, both the Dakotas. Mm. Nebraska. Um uh I think Arkansas mm. and Tennessee. Oh, just six? Woohoo. Oh, shoot, there's one more. <laughs> mm, I can't remember. Okay. That'll be a cliffhanger. <laughs> We'll keep you guessing, listeners. <laughs> I said Oklahoma. You did. That was the okay. first one. Six 
And a mystery seventh. Oh, no, it was both Dakotas. You said both Dakotas. Oh, I did? And Nebraska? <laughs> you said that. Shoot. Okay, cliffhanger. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so you recruit, you re- you went around to colleges, to states, to recruit students. So you didn't, did you then also go on the tall ships? No, okay. I didn't. Well, yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I, yes, after I graduated, I did a little bit of sailing around on tall ships. And after that ended, then I needed a real job. And so Time to this face the music. <laughs> position was a real job by my definition. Um, so then, yeah, I moved out to Woods Hole and I worked there. But after a couple of years, I decided that I missed science and, and I wanted to do some research. Well, I, I love this story. So so this is kind of what I was alluding to before that, like, you know, networks and connections are so important. So the person you worked with at Woods Hole ended up being a committee member for you at, for your master's, for your Ph.D., and is now also a collaborator in in your postdoc life. So, yes. so, so really a, a network, a, a connection that, that runs across many, many years. Um, but you had this little anecdote that I loved about when, when you were working at Woods Hole, you said you loved your tech job, but you came to, I mean, you came to realize many things, but there was one thing in particular that I thought was so great. Yeah. Okay. Well, so flash forward, I leave C semester and I start working and for no fisheries in Woods Hole and I loved being a technician, and this is where I was first introduced to passive acoustics. And our building was at the end of the road, and half of the building was facing the ocean, and the other half was facing a parking lot. And I noticed that everyone that had a PhD or an advanced degree and was like a at like a PI level or higher had a window with a view of the ocean, <laughs> and everyone else had a view of the parking lot. So... Samara decided she didn't want to look at concrete anymore. Yeah, I wanted that view of the ocean. So I knew I had to go back to grad school. Wow, that that was, well, there were many reasons. But there were that many was... reasons, but yeah, hopefully I will eventually have a beautiful view of the ocean. Currently, not really. Well, Still, yeah. no, yeah. Working on it. We're stuck in I'm Corvallis. <laughs> um, and that and that brings us full circle. You, you then, I mean, yes, Grad school applications is a whole thing, but eventually you you made it to to here OSU yeah for your master's stayed for a PhD and here we are yeah talking I, about I it all settled now settled right in <laughs> one thing I forgot to mention is that um, Samara's actually been on inspiration dissemination before way back when in yeah. 2016 wowie wowie <laughs> unfortunately That's how Apple... long I've been working here. <laughs> Unfortunately, Apple Podcast doesn't go back that far, so um, you can't go back and listen to that. But yeah, I think thank- I had like a iPhone four. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you say something? Your laptop had an Ethernet port. Oh, not in 2016. Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's when you started your your grad school. Well, my undergrad. Oh, your undergrad. <laughs> Sorry. Not that old. Oh, I'm so. <laughs> So confused over here. Um, Samara, it has been a tremendous pleasure that we finally got to do this. Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, On inspiration dissemination, we have two traditions uh, at the end of um, each show. We ask our guest for two things. The first is we ask uh, our guest to provide a piece of advice. It can be to a former self, to undergrads, to grads, to whomever. Um, But yeah, who's it for and what is it? So my advice is, well, it's kind of a, a riff on you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right? <laughs> Isn't that like Wayne Gretzky or something? Oh, I don't know. Amy will correct me. American sports. Anyway, my <laughs> advice is to apply for every scholarship, even if it's not for very much money or you think you don't qualify or that for some reason you're not good enough for it. You will never get it if you don't apply. Those are some wise words because listeners, I will tell you, Samara Haver is excellent at getting money. And and I just applied a lot. Right. <laughs> well, and something that you said earlier is money begets more money. Yeah. And then right, once you earn a scholarship, then your your resume or your C V looks better, which makes it easier to get the next one and so on and so forth. So circular. Yeah. <laughs> but it That's is the, the game, way it but is. You gotta play it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because when I first asked you 
um, or prepped you before and told you we we would need advice, you said, well, I have a lot of advice, but this one I think is the one that makes a big difference. Yeah, when you bring a postdoc on the show, I have a lot of advice. <laughs> Samara's jaded <laughs> and over it. Oh, not my words. <laughs> um, that's good advice. I think, yeah, I don't do that enough and I don't get a, I don't get a lot of money. It's probably because I don't apply. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, our second tradition on the show is that you get to pick your outro song. Um, I, I love that you picked this song. It, it's so applicable. Tell, tell the listeners what it is and why you picked it. Or don't, and we just surprise the listeners. I can tell the listeners. <laughs> so the song is called Listening In. It's by a band, uh, Dr. Dog. <laughs> and I picked out this song um, when we first started talking about me uh, coming on wow. the show. Years ago. Yeah, because I'd seen Dr. Dog recently and heard this song, and the lyrics just, you know, at face value fit my research. It's written for you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> They talk about, you know, what are the animals saying? Are you hearing them? Who are they talking to? They're not talking to me, the singer says. You know. <laughs> um, anyway, I just thought it was perfect. I thought so, too. Um, thanks again, Samara. Uh, I've had a lot of fun. Um, listeners, you will find us here every week. Um, inspiration Dissemination interviewing a new graduate student at Oregon State. For now, thanks for listening, and please enjoy Listening In by Dr. Dog. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamath. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.